Hey, all, we need your help. We're hoping to raise $10,000 over the next few months to help cover the costs of a few current and upcoming projects. These include, but are not limited to, a complete redesign of our logo and design work for merchandise with our soon-to-be-announced store. Your donations will also be tax-deductible as we've just turned in the paperwork towards becoming an official nonprofit. Any amount is immensely helpful and we'll personally email each donor a thank you. Absolutely everything we do on this show is to make sure the gospel is heard throughout the world and the barrier of entry into confessional reform theology is as low as possible. So go to our show notes and click the link that says donor box at the top of the page and donate. Now on with the show. Um, but but this becomes you know a major uh, source for evangelical culture. Uh, I trace it through the megachurch world, through mm-hmm. um, Christian contemporary music. Mm-hmm. There's tons of movies and TV shows that draw on the rapture and other things. So that's one whole sort of commercial legacy or consumer legacy. And then the other big legacy is the political legacy. And this has to do with, um, this is where I try to have a through line, which is by the seventies, there's this growing critique among conservative uh, fundamentalists and evangelicals that um, there's a secular humanist threat that is going to take over the country and going to make, uh, and this would be the way they would describe it in the seventies is going to make the U S no different than the Soviet union. Welcome to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, a show devoted to bridging the gap to the historic Reformed Christian faith. Listen in as two friends, a layman Nick and a pastor Peter, discuss the newest and best books in the broader Christian tradition with some of the most respected seminary and college professors, pastors, theologians, authors, and more. We hope these book club episodes introduce solid theological works to those who want to read but don't know where to start or who to trust. You'll be introduced to authors you know and many others you don't from various theological traditions, but all under the broader tent of our shared creedal tradition. All of these authors and books help us to do the same thing. They remind us of how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, sponsored by Logos Bible Software, where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. Today, we're doing a book club episode with Daniel Hummel on, and he wrote the book published by Erdman's, this new book here, The Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism, How the Evangelical Battle Over The End Times Shaped a Nation. Fascinating book. Peter and I just loved reading it. Um, There is a forward by a previous guest we've had, Mark Knoll, on. Great forward. And then uh, a little bit more, you know, on the looking at the back of the book here, an extra kind of a description of it. A riveting history of dispensationalism and its influence on popular culture, politics, and religion. So this is a great... Uh, historical objective uh, summary of it. And I think we're going to learn a lot about it. And we have obviously the author as our guest today, Daniel Hummel. So he's going to 
uh, talk to us about this book. And so if you go to our show notes, there's a link to Erdman's. So click that link and it'll take you right to this book. Also, speaking of our show notes, uh, I've uh, mistakenly neglected to mention um, our link to our covenantal network. Um, it's a confessional network podcast. There's a link. Click that. It'll take you to um, on some of the episodes I forgot to mention in that. So it'll take you to our network of other covenantal and uh, reformed podcasts, uh, confessional, I'm sorry, podcasts out there. So uh, confessional podcast network. And so um, there's also a link to find a local reformed church near your area. And then also just more information about uh, Peter and my show, uh, how to contact us. Uh, there's uh, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. So if you're not watching this and you're just listening to our show, you can also watch it. Um, the video is automatically recorded, put it on YouTube. So I'll let uh, Peter further introduce our guest today, Daniel Hummel. Yeah, it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Daniel G. Hummel, who's the director for University Engagement at Upper House a Christian study for uh, center serving the University of Wisconsin-Madison, leads the Upper House's programming for the university community, and hosts the organization's podcast. So he does something fairly similar to what we do. And he also is the author of Covenant Brothers, Evangelicals, Jews, and U.S.-Israel Relations, has written about religion, politics, foreign policy for the Washington Post, Christianity Today, and Religion News Service. His academic research has been published in Religion and American Culture, and church history it is a pleasure having you on the show, Dr. Hummel. It's a pleasure to be here with both of you. This will be this will be fun. It's something I learned, and we don't we don't generally send our first kind of icebreaker question that the author doesn't know. But something I learned before this: you lived in Santa Ana for a little spell, which is where I live. You want to yeah tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and kind of where you found yourself and, and how you found yourself in Santa Ana and beyond. Yeah, I have family on uh, my mom's side in particular, but my dad also grew up in Orange County. Uh, and I was born in Fullerton, which is close by to Santa yep. Ana. 10 miles in, north of us, yep. Yeah, in Orange County. And then uh, I was a missionary kid. So hmm. my family uh, lived in Germany for many years. We were part of a small evangelical mission agency called Greater Europe Mission. Uh, got to be in Germany. I was young at the time, but got to be there when the Berlin Wall came down. And oh, wow. the entire sort of Eastern, East Germany uh, was opened up to missionaries and uh, in a way that it hadn't been uh, yeah, yeah, in, yeah. during the Cold War period. Yep. So and they, anyway, we, we were originally sent, uh, we had a major supporter, a church supporter in Orange County. And so when we had our furlough after four years, we ended up living in Santa Ana and uh that was my sort of first year full year in, in southern california hmm. that's the, actually the only time in my life i've lived in orange county but all my family's there so most huh. years hmm. i'm in orange county at least once if not more times uh to to visit family but yeah, uh, yeah deep roots in that area going back to a uh, couple generations now that's awesome well, connect with us when you're in town next time yeah. <laughs> rather, right. grab a beer or something yeah absolutely yeah so um more more into this before kind of we get into the meat of it um you kind of talk about this in the book but this is the book's more like a kind of outside perspective a historian's perspective on dispensational but how did you get into dispensational how did how did this book come about um where did the research idea come about and all that good stuff i was uh the, the family i grew up in 
basically assumed dispensationalism as the right way to read the Bible and and think about theology. My dad is a, a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary, which is the major yep. uh, seminary historically that's taught dispensationalism. So I grew up just in a culture, in a subculture, I guess, of the church that just assumed that was the right way to read the Bible. But it, it wasn't cultish or anything. It was just okay. that that was the way we mm -hmm. thought about it. And Yeah, we're Christians. Um, Therefore, we're dispensationalists. Therefore, that's right. how we read the Bible. Right, right. And particularly uh, having a high view of the authority of the Bible was seen yeah. as like taking a literal reading of prophecy in particular. Um, yeah. I ended up, uh, uh, after mission, mission being uh, missionaries uh, abroad, we ended up moving to Colorado Springs to hmm. uh, for my dad to work in the home office of Greater Europe Mission, which is headquartered in just north of Colorado Springs. Hmm. So I ended up attending a, a megachurch there as a kid that was the same mega church as Jerry Jenkins, the uh, co-author of the Left Behind novels. So ah. um, that was another. So I, I remember one. It, this was in the '90s, so it was it was the late '90s when the Left Behind novels were coming out. Oh yeah, They're and huge. I remember. Yeah, yeah, I remember. We we sort of had like a Jenkins Appreciation Day in our church one time, and <laughs> sort of had him come up on stage, and he was interviewed, and uh, all that kind of stuff. So uh, that was and then he I got was a, raptured. And you're like, oh my gosh. Well, uh, uh, not yet, not yet. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, I, I was really into those novels as a kid. Um, I, I remember going to, I mean, this is really Colorado Springs uh, heavy, but going to focus on the family. Oh, where yeah. There was a, a signing day for the uh, sixth novel, which I believe was called Assassins or Assassin. Uh, and I have, I have that, I still have that assigned copy of Assassin by Jerry Jenkins. I was probably... <laughs> 12 or 13 at the time. Yeah. And um, anyway, so I grew up in that world. Um, I, mm -hmm. I ended up going to public school uh, and and a public university. So I was in a very pluralistic setting where I was um, learning, you know, some stuff from church, but really being exposed to a lot of different types of Christians and non-Christians. Yeah. Uh, so, so by the time I went to college, I went to Colorado State University, which is in Fort Collins, Colorado. Um, I was, uh, I, I probably had a assumed dispensationalist perspective on things still just from my upbringing. Uh, mm -hmm. and I definitely was passionate about keeping my faith alive, but I ended up reading, you know, Francis Schaeffer and CS Lewis and other things mm -hmm. that none of these people are dispensationalists. And no. so I ended up, um, basically without knowing it, adopting a lot of assumptions about the Bible that weren't dispensationalists just because of the people I was reading. And it wasn't until I became a, a graduate student in history that I really could put categories to a lot of this stuff and understand sort of draw divisions between different traditions and and things like that. But um, I do credit, you know, that upbringing for giving me a very strong appreciation for the Bible, oh, a yeah. love for the Bible, a desire to be in it every day and and to read. Um, also just um, a desire to think theologically, uh, mm -hmm. even if I don't necessarily agree with uh, still agree with the dispensationalist uh, views on things. Yeah, uh, dispensationalists have a really good reputation for um, thinking theologically. There's a there's a a quote in in my book from George Eldon Ladd, who is mm -hmm. a major New Testament scholar and critic of dispensationalism in the 20th mm -hmm. century. But but he he admits or or credits um, the dispensational system for producing you know millions or thousands at least of pastors and missionaries oh, yeah. who just had a love of the word of God. So I take mm -hmm. all that uh, with me. Um, but yeah, by the time I was in college, I, I was really sort of exploring a broader, I guess you could say evangelical uh, theological world. And, um, and, and that's when I, I, I guess I left the dispensationalist fold in, in a way and ended up landing at a church here in, in Madison, Wisconsin. That's part of the evangelical free church uh, mm -hmm. denomination. So mm -hmm. one that mm -hmm. has a pretty distinct 
influence of dispensationalism. Oh, it's got a strong influence. Yeah. But the the church I happened to go to was actually pastored for a long time by a Dallas graduate, but um, it moved into the more uh, sort of uh, Gordon Conwell uh, stream of, I I don't even know, we don't really talk about eschatology in a very prominent way, but probably like an amillennial type uh, type tradition. So that's that's where I sit now, but uh, I have a lot of family and friends who remain more sort of in the dispensationalist fold. Cool. Awesome. Yeah, not too dissimilar from even my past, too. Just growing up thinking, you know, I'm Christian and therefore, even though I didn't know the term, even though I didn't know the term really dispensational, it wasn't really, it was like those things that are dispensational are just Christian and there's no other point of view. That's kind of the waters I grew up as. Or any other point of view, they're kind of playing fast and loose, like you talk about in in the book and. They're allegorical, where it's just literal. Yeah, there's there's a lot of kind of assumptions built into the system. Yeah, that, that yeah. was probably the the overriding, but, but beyond any detail, it was the sense that anything less than a literal interpretation was somehow a slippery slope toward yep. um, losing your faith or, yep. or at least getting very liberal in your theology. And that, um, that was definitely something, I, I mean, I still sometimes fall into that mode, to be honest. <laughs> so it's, it's something that you sort of grow up in and, yep. and it's hard to to think out of it. Yeah. But, uh, the other part of your question was about what made me want to sort of uh, study it yep. uh, like this. Mm. And part mm-hmm. of that is just growing up in it, but, uh, and, and wanting to learn more about it. I'm an intellectual historian by training. So I'm, I'm interested in ideas and how ideas uh, t- change over time and how they actually become influential in people's lives and how they live their lives. Uh, but there was also a, a more specific, um, you could say historiographical or, or sort of question among historians that I was interested in. And it was uh, there's a lot been a lot of history written about fundamentalism uh, yep. by people like Mark Knoll and George Marsden and yep. Joel Carpenter and, and among others. And dispensationalism definitely plays a role in those stories, but it's not, it wasn't to my satisfaction treated hmm. as a dynamic tradition. It was often treated as a static sort of um, uh, uh, set of uh, monolithic. There's only kind of one thing. There's only one yeah. way of doing it. Yeah, and to be and to be frank, um, we were talking before coming on air about uh, Mark Knoll's Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, and yeah. Yeah. that's a that's a book that I love and and really shaped me uh, as a grad student. But uh, dispensationalism crops up in there, and it's entirely as sort of an anti-intellectual yep. uh, stand-in, and yeah. uh, that, that that's probably indicative of how a lot of historians would treat it. So I was interested in thinking of it more as an intellectual mm. historian might, which is. Uh, no, no tradition is just static. I mean, that, that, that would require that humans aren't involved. Whenever humans get involved, <laughs> yeah. things start changing. And as long mm-hmm. as history is changing, yeah. the, the ideas are going to be adapting. And then there was this very particular uh, debate about the development of evangelicalism in the 20th century and what caused the break between fundamentalism and evangelicalism. And this might be of interest to some of your some of your listeners. And there've been these broader categories around um, sort of engagement with culture mm-hmm. or getting out of the, the sort of separatism of fundamentalism. But there was an article back in the 80s by a guy named Donald Dayton, who is uh, a historian of more Wesleyan evangelicalism. And he said one of the overlooked factors was that almost all of the neo-evangelicals or the, the evangelicals in the 40s and 50s were not dispensationalists. Yeah. And all of the fundamentalists uh, or many of the fundamentalists were. Mm-hmm. And I found that to be an interesting sort of theological explanation or, or sort of angle into a major moment in 
modern American church history that has been overlooked because we were using different categories to talk about that that era. So there are some chapters in the book where I sort of slow down a bit and talk mm -hmm. about fundamentalism and the development of neo-evangelicalism and Billy Graham and all those characters, Carl F.H. Yep. Henry and, yep. and others, and yep. try to show how a lot of what they were doing differently than the fundamentalists was actually trying to rethink kingdom theology and mm. their their sort of um really get more covenantalist in their theology mm. uh, as opposed to the dispensationalism that was really predominant in the fundamentalist world so that was a very narrow sort of intellectual question i had that i really wanted to cover in this book as well yeah i remember reading that in yeah the scandal of the evangelical mind and we talked again before recording i, I was reared theologically at biola and um that was not really a tradition. I knew I, I knew it as a little bit more scholarly, as as um kind of some more kind of like muscle behind it. Um, but I had never seen, yeah, kind of really strong treatment of the the system as a whole. But it was so it was cool reading this and seeing the various strands, which I had kind of known about a little bit, but couldn't have put my finger historically. I just knew like the hermeneutical kind of scripture reading principles that they had, less so where did they come from? Mm-hmm. Yeah, getting into the meat of this conversation, and obviously this is a um, historical, mainly a historical kind of observation and, and objective outlook, and, and not, not totally limited to that, but it is a very helpful, um, holistic summary of how, how it got, how the rise of dispensationalism happened historically, where the decline happened. And so it really bears starting the conversation on a historical perspective. There's obviously people involved, uh, multiple actors and institutions that are associated with it. So it's good to have people as we get this conversation going, as, um, introduced to those um, and a variety of interpretations that you profi profile throughout the book as well that are associated with dispensationalism. Um so we'll begin with just, you know, the major founder of the decidingly uh, American, though he himself was not American, a uh, flavor of dispensationalism during, you know, during what period did he popularize this? And maybe just a basic general definition of what dispensationalism is. Right. So uh, the, the figure is John Nelson Darby, which a lot of people have have uh, focused on. And uh, Darby is credited as being the, the really the originator of a lot of what we now know as dispensationalism. He's, he's not necessarily making anything up, but he's combining a lot of different strands of previous Protestant thinking mm -hmm. into a new uh, tradition. And he is an Anglo-Irish uh, priest in the yeah. uh, Anglican Church in Ireland, so the Church of Ireland, who, uh, as a young 20-something, becomes really disenchanted with the Anglican Church. And this was, to me, one of the more fascinating parts of where this comes, where these ideas come from, is that Darby was not someone that was coming at dispensationalism necessarily from the end times first. So mm -hmm. many, many people in or outside dispensationalism assume it's mostly an eschatology. It's mostly a right. theory of uh, how the end of the world will happen. But really, it's a full system of theology, and and the way Darby really gets uh, a lot of his ideas uh, organized is around ecclesiology, around mm -hmm. what is the church and what is the mission of the church. And so he gets really dissatisfied with the Anglican church because he sees the Anglican church basically uh, reducing or blunting its missional uh, uh, role in the world 
and and playing to the British Empire's interests. And this happens particularly in Ireland, where he thinks the um, the Anglican Church is not doing everything it can to try to convert Catholic Irish to Anglicanism. Hmm. And so he gets uh, and there, there's a particular set of sequences of events that lead him to this. But he ends up basically breaking with the Anglican Church over basically calling the, the Anglican Church too worldly, too mm -hmm. involved in the interests of the British Empire. And he develops a new ecclesiology that basically is that the church is entirely otherworldly. It's entirely focused on, it should be, on mission. And any of these state churches all across Europe are apostate, basically, mm -hmm. and that they're they're failing in their mission to uh, spread the gospel uh, as God as God wants them to. So he he ends up founding the the Plymouth Brethren movement, uh, which is a, a pretty radical uh, separatist <laughs> sect yeah. in the Protestant world, and uh, and he's introduced to Americans as the leader of the Plymouth Brethren. And what's interesting to me is is the um, eschatology sort of flows from this ecclesiology. We can get into some of that sort of how, how those things connect. But Americans tend to be really interested in the eschatology part. And far mm -hmm. less so in the ecclesiology part. So the people who pick <laughs> yeah. up his teachings. I'm very surprised by that statement being, <laughs> yeah. I'm joking. I'm not surprised. Right. By yeah. right. But, he, but Darby is very disappointed. He spent seven years in the U.S. Uh, over the 1860s and 1870s. He's very disappointed that so many Presbyterians and Baptists and Methodists like, less so the Methodists, Congregationalists, like his end times teaching, but they don't want to leave their denominations. And uh, and in fact, the brethren don't even believe in clergy, in know, ordained yeah. clergy. And so he's really yeah. disappointed that these pastors also won't reject their being pastors. Their, their, <laughs> being pastors. Yeah. Yeah. So you end up getting a bunch of Presbyterian pastors and Baptist pastors who end up teaching parts of Darby's system or Darby's theology, mm. but they don't actually follow the key thing that Darby wanted, which was to leave and become yeah. brethren. Uh, so th there's a complicated relationship there. And that's one of the things in... in in the historical literature, there is often a glossing over of this story hmm. that would lead one to assume if they didn't do more research, that basically what dispensationalism is, is just Darby's ideas transmitted to Americans who sort of unthinkingly pick them up and use them. Hmm. And in fact, if you look at it, there's a much more, there's an Americanization of yeah. Darby's ideas that mean they actually look a lot different than what Darby had intended in the first place. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that uh, and that's that's a good... That's a good transition to uh, beginnings of American dispensationalism. Now, I'm kind of jumping back and forth between this. I think it's helpful because um, a lot of our listeners are probably more obviously familiar with the American dispensationalism. That's that's been more popularized because um, it's like you said, it has a, it has a different focus than um, modern day modern day dispensationalism versus kind of older American dispensationalism, um, kind of immediately post Darby. Uh, and especially following the split of the 70s and 80s. So you highlight a few leaders, and we're going to kind of focus on the beginning of American dispensationalism uh, around the Civil War. Uh, and I found this part fascinating because it's not what you think of modern-day dispensationalism. It's very different from kind of, well, maybe historic, not historic, but like late 19th century dispensation. They they disengage from culture. Like we don't, we don't want to have anything to do with culture. And especially so with racism and segregation, because that was obviously the hot topic during the Civil War. Is like we don't want to deal with this. Let's just do our own thing. So who are, who are some of the leaders, and what about dispensationalism allured them in a time of cultural turmoil? Yeah, I can I can summarize a few of the key teachings that Darby that, may, that were appealing to Americans from Darby. 
So we've we've mentioned the sort of otherworldliness of the church. Yeah. So that, that's a key one. And but what that does when Darby develops that, it creates a sort of hermeneutic that goes throughout the the whole Bible that divides all of uh all of the Bible as God dealing with either the people of Israel or the church. And mm-hmm. this this creates a uh this is sort of the the heart of the dispensationalist uh, theology mm-hmm. is that there's a radical distinction, or at least a clear distinction, between Israel and the church. For Darby, it played into this what I call a dualism uh, between heaven and earth, and so uh, the church is God's heavenly people, and Israel is God's earthly people. Mm-hmm. And if you believe that, then God has certain ways He deals with Israel, and certain ways He deals with the church, and He's trying to accomplish sort of different tasks there. And if you believe that, then your eschatology will sort of form around that, to where the distinctive end times teaching that Darby introduced was the any moment secret rapture of the church, mm-hmm. which is God sort of pulling the church out of the earth so that He can resume His uh, plans of redemption with the the people of Israel. And so this is also where there's a fascination among dispensationalists with the people of Israel, with the state of Israel today, yep. because they see that as a very significant actor in God's uh, plans uh, for the future. So uh, this is part of what is really appealing to Americans hmm. in the 1860s and 1870s, when Darby's actually hanging around in the U.S. and has a bunch of popularizers, other brethren who are writing uh, popular tracks. Dar- Darby wasn't very a very good writer, actually. He, he wrote a ton, but he was very complicated. <laughs> yeah. Eclectic. And dense. Yep. Yeah. He never redrafted anything, which, uh, you know, I, as someone who redrafts a lot, I I would <laughs> I just would shake to know if people were just reading my first drafts of, yeah. <laughs> of everything yeah. I was reading. Um, but he had popularizers who were much better at, at clarifying, but also simplifying. So he was very sophisticated, very nuanced um, in his in his thinking. Uh, and and some of the popularizations weren't weren't so nuanced. But the the key for the American reception that I follow are are two two different paths. One is through ecclesiology, and one is through eschatology. And yep. the Civil War was a very dramatic moment in American history. A lot of people thought uh, that this was must be playing into some type of end time scenario mm-hmm. that got, that the end of history was near. Mm-hmm. And I, I follow particularly, which is is a guy named Joseph Seiss, who mm-hmm. was a Lutheran of all. Uh, there aren't many <laughs> yeah. Lutheran dispensationalists today. Yeah, the least likely person you would think would ever turn to this. Right. Uh, but but Seiss was very uh, unique, and he was significant because he pastored the largest Lutheran church in the country, in Philadelphia, uh, during the Civil War. So he he was someone who was convinced that the Darbyite, uh, at that time, was what was called the Darbyite system of thinking about the end times, was actually making a lot of sense of the world in the 1870s in particular. So he came at this and was just was looking around for uh, how to interpret these events that were dramatic in the in North America in biblical terms and prophetic terms. The more interesting person to me is James Brooks, who was in St. Mm-hmm. Louis. He becomes the mentor to, to Cyrus Schofield, who mm-hmm. does the Schofield Bible and is really a main trajectory for dispensationalism. Mm-hmm. And Brooks is in St. Louis, which is a what, what we call a border state. So a state during the Civil War that was officially with the North, but had very strong Southern sympathies. Yeah. And so there was a, it was very difficult to be a pastor in a border state because you had congregations. Think about, I mean, I, I don't know how many of your listeners are pastors or go to churches where issues of race and justice and other things are really hot topics right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, imagine there's a Civil War happening and <laughs> yeah. those are the topics. Um, yeah. Uh, there, there was a desire desire for a variety of reasons, some I would say more selfish, some more uh, well-minded or or high-minded, 
to find ways to extract the church from those debates and to focus yeah. on what someone like James Brooks thought was the real call of the church, which was not to sort of settle reconstruction or work for, for justice, but to do missions work and to disciple people. Yeah. And so Darby's ecclesiology, which basically says the church's entire role is heavenly. It is not to try to get into politics or to try to um, sort of support the nation or anything like that. Uh, the, the, the whole role is heavenly. This was really appealing to Brooks. And so Brooks talks about his own, what he calls a conversion to premillennialism, and he means mm -hmm. a Darbyite version, uh, in the late 1860s. And he's doing this as he's trying to navigate these major uh, tens tension points in the church. And he becomes uh, the major figure in... Uh, ushering in premillennialism into the American church, but this mm. particular type of premillennialism, which is which is Darby's type. And uh, so he comes at that from the sort of ecclesiology um, angle. And that becomes a major uh, defining point of uh, dispensationalists in the late 19th century is that they tend to be people who are very focused on missions and discipleship mm -hmm. and, and say that uh, no matter what's going on in the world, no matter what injustice is happening in the world, the role of the church is not to try to fix those things. It is to try to evangelize people because the end is near and our calling is to evangelize the world. Yeah, which sounds so different than modern day dispensationalism, which you profile obviously in the book. We'll get into it. Um, but I, my, my guess is that's not where people think dispensationalism. They must assume it's always been this way, always been kind of cultural warrior-ish and let's, let's, yeah. let's kind of affect politics. But it comes from a very different perspective. Yeah, we'll get to that, but I think there is a through line that makes there's a continuity, which is this concern for global missions. Yeah, and it's every generations of dispensationalists sort of come at that, like, what's the thing that's going to make global missions or missions in general continue? Yeah, and so when we get to the 20th century, there's a different set of politics to that. But in the 19th totally. century, the politics was um, basically let's not weigh in on these things. And I think it's sort of a, I mean, I don't know where where everyone comes from on these things, but there's sort of a tragic choice being made. Yeah. by many dispensationalists at the time. And the, and the other big name here is Dwight Moody, the big revivalist mm -hmm. of the late 19th century, who basically picks up a lot of these teachings as well. And and Moody makes a pretty clear choice that uh, to get global missions off the ground in a way that is going to scale to the globe, the, he's going to need the help of Southern uh, white Christians. Yeah. Uh, it's it's just uh, it's just a fact. Uh, Dwight Moody's in Chicago. He's got a big network in the North, but uh, he does a ton of revivals in the South in the 1860s and 1870s. And he's really trying to push this uh, reconciliationist message that the Civil War was really bad. Uh, we don't really want to adjudicate whose fault it was. Uh, we want to sort of lament everyone's uh, everyone who died. Um, and we really don't want to deal with the uh, the racial issues after the Civil War, because those are going to detract from global missions. And mm -hmm. so that's sort of one of the 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 choices that a lot of dispensationalists make in a really in a in a real way in the U.S. in the 1870s is they pull out of any type of concern for um, the emerging Jim Crow segregationist regimes in Southern states. They pull out of trying to do sort of integrated church uh church experiments yeah and say these are going to really just create massive division in the church and instead we should focus on global missions and which is a really good i, I mean i support global missions i was a missionary totally yeah about. um but 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 there are choices being made to prioritize yeah. some things over the other that have ramifications all the way to today absolutely yeah that's helpful yeah absolutely as you probably know we talk a lot about westminster seminary california on here 
I can't even begin to tell you the impact this institution has had on my faith, my family, and the ministry the Lord has entrusted me with. If you feel called to serve the church and want the most rigorous training for gospel ministry around, consider coming to Westminster Seminary, California, a confessionally reformed institution in sunny San Diego that offers master's degrees in biblical and theological studies, historical theology, and divinity. Westminster's approach to ministry education emphasizes a mastery of the original biblical languages, maintaining a small student-to-professor ratio, a laser focus on face-to-face education coupled with an understanding of the importance of having pastor-scholars with decades of ministry experience train the next generation of servant leaders for the Church of Jesus Christ. If this interests you, and I hope it does, call Westminster today at 888-480-8474 to talk to admissions counselor or visit www.wscal.edu. Again, call Westminster Seminary California today at 888-480-8474 or log on to www.wscal.edu, which will all be available in our show notes. Westminster Seminary California for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Um. And it's, it's highlighted in your title uh, to dive into this part first, uh, the rise of dispensationalism. And it's, you know, it's, it's obviously got some fertile soil in America. And we all know that uh, it's, it's a dominant view in American uh, Christianity, evangelism, um, to the point where a lot of Americans like me growing up sound like a little bit from you guys too that you just kind of assume that's the default christian way of thinking whether you know the term dispensationalism or not to be an american christian is got dispensational views and um so it it doesn't it it does seem like there is just fertile ground in american soil and that makes us ask what is it about america that has been so inviting and and uh, fertile soil for this to grow. So, and it hasn't really caught on globally anywhere else like it has here, especially historically, because like we even said, um, the most influential person in the beginning, Darby, he wasn't originally even American. And then it it really uh, grew a lot here. So what is it about American evangelism, uh, evangelicalism, I'm sorry, that provides such rich ground for his theological system, and how did it start shaping theology in America? Yeah, that's, a, that's the million-dollar question in some ways, <laughs> is, is what's unique about sort of American Christianity on this stuff? Um, yeah. Yeah, there's, some, there's some more structural uh, explanations. Uh, the Americans are very decentralized. I mean, the disestablishment of religion really helps this. Uh, it allows for ideas to enter the bloodstream of American Christianity in a way that in countries like Britain or uh, any any sort of state church, uh, someone like Darby is always on the outside. He's a, mm. he's sort of a, a sect, and then he's not ever in the center. There's a stronger hierarchical system that you can't really break into. That's right. And, and the U.S. is the opposite, right? It's, it's a marketplace. We, we often yeah, use true. that metaphor. And anyone who can get a following can start um, sort of building a church. I think there's a lot of historical reasons. We talked about a few of them 
why the U.S. would be particularly receptive to these teachings in the 1860s, 1870s. It's also important to know from from Darby's side, from the Brethren's side, they were very interested in the U.S. Uh, as a as a mission field for mm. the Brethren message, and so they paid they paid a lot of attention to to all different parts of the globe. The Brethren were early global missions minded people. Uh, but they spent a lot of time, and Darby's time in the U.S. is evidence of that, really thinking about the American church as a, a, a ripe opportunity to be receptive to the teachings uh, th that they were offering. And th there's, a, there's a tradition of uh, millenarian sects in the U.S. as well. Darby's coming just a couple decades after the Millerites uh, mm -hmm. had their uh, 18, 1843, 1844, their great disappointment where they were expecting Jesus to come yeah. back. <laughs> There's sort of a, a tradition of Americans uh, being apocalyptic in at least some Americans uh, with their religion as yeah. well. I think also to get to the second part of your question about how does this start changing American Christianity or the church? Uh, Moody is a big part of this. So Dwight Moody is uh, the biggest revivalist in the country in the world, you could say, because he does a world tour as well in the late 19th century for about 30 years from about 1870 to 1900. He dies in 1899. Moody is the biggest name. He's like Billy Graham was for many decades. And so uh, Moody brought with him an entire sort of uh, solar system of uh, people and institutions. And Moody was a you could call him, to borrow a term from later on, a leaky dispensationalist. He had certain, <laughs> yeah. uh, particularly around the rapture, he really taught that people should trust in Jesus as soon as possible because the rapture is coming in any moment. Yeah. And yeah. so he, he liked sort of the utility of some of these teachings. And the, and when 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 Moody said something, a lot of people listened. And so Moody's Moody and his people, his lieutenants and and sort of the broader Moody movement helped create the basically the backbone of what is we could call conservative Protestantism in America mm. for the early 20th century. And really there's, there's three distinct things there. There's the Bible Institute movement, which are these new types of, of uh, educational institutes that are intended to train missionaries, but uh, ultimately uh, become colleges in the 20th century and become uh, sort of the bedrock of Christian college uh, world. And those start, many of them, assuming dispensationalist categories of theology and, and this sense that there's urgency to the missions work because of the imminent return of Jesus. There are the um, Bible conferences, which are maybe less popular now, but were a major source of uh, teaching and gathering for mm -hmm. Christians 100 years ago. So one of the famous ones was the Niagara Bible Conference, which yep. met uh, up in Canada uh, for, for decades was really where a lot of the theologians and writers around uh, end times, uh, eschatology and other things gathered every year to learn from each other. But there were dozens and dozens of Bible conference uh, Bible conferences around the country. And many of them were started by people who just assumed dispensationalism was the right way to read the Bible. And that's everyone from people we, we wouldn't even recognize anymore who started um, Bible, Bible, Bible institutes and other things to people like Billy Sunday, who was a major revivalist in the early 20th century, who was not a theologian by any means. No, he's a baseball player. <laughs> he was a baseball player turned revivalist, but basically just invoke things like the rapture as uh, common parlance, uh, because that was the tradition he was taught and he was just going to take it at face value. And then the third thing are the global missions agencies. And those become the engine for thousands of Americans to go around the globe and spread the gospel. And it's interesting, a lot of that spreading of the gospel was dispensationalist in 
uh, assumptions. And so you see like the Schofield Reference Bible, which is the main sort mm -hmm. of annotated Bible that explains the dispensational system, was published in 1909. It's quickly translated into other languages because of the mission's urgency. And many of the people that are early converts are dispensationalist but but there's an interesting trend which i don't get into much in the book no. which is by two or three generations later they're they're out of that mode and hmm. um and there's there's interesting stories to that but um uh but it does become you know a largely american uh american led uh theology when there's another version of it another version of history i guess where it could have been much more global you could have imagined chinese dispensationalists and Peruvian dispensationalists and everything else. Um, there's a lot of reasons why that doesn't happen. But those three, those three institutions or or engines, you could say, uh, the Bible Conference Movement, the Bible Institutes, and the and the Global Missions Agencies basically become a major part of evangelical culture. And they're all by the early 20th century uh, run by people who are really friendly or actual dispensationalists. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in part you've we've kind of gotten into this a little bit part of part of that kind of dispensational engine is is a as a way of reading the bible uh we've talked about this a little bit kind of we'll hear well the literal interpretation of this verse is it a little like the, the word that's literally used here um and and my guess is that comes somewhat from the dispensational way the dispensational kind of vocabulary uh and there's a there's a sense and you talk about this this is kind of towards the middle of your book uh, the Bible should be read in such a common sense way that you can basically import today's understanding on the ancient understanding on 2000 years ago, how they, how they wrote or 3000 years ago or during the prophecies. What we mean today is exactly what they meant back then. And that's generally understood. I know there's, there's broadness. To this is the, there's a literal interpretation and it became synonymous with both dispensational and premillennial theology and everything else played with the text was analogies, was allegories, was, was fast and loose. So how did the way they read their Bible influence their theology or maybe asked in a, a slightly different way? How did dispensationalism provide a lens for reading scripture? Right. And there's, um, there's a lot of interesting angles into this. One that I talk about is the rise of um, not just common sense in sort of a vernacular, but like the common sense philosophy of yep. the Scottish enlightenment yep. and how so much of 19th century evangelicalism in America assumes the categories of common sense philosophy mm -hmm. and and the the basic uh, takeaway is that anyone is pos possesses this this faculty of common sense that can lead toward uh reasoning just within oneself toward the truth of something and so if you bring that to a very complicated text like the bible it can lead one to think that a surface level understanding of the of the words on the page are the intended meaning of mm -hmm. of the text and what's interesting i i get into a little of, of even the way that the ability to to read the bible is changing in the 19th century so things like uh um uh chronologies and indexes mm -hmm. of of words in the bible are emerging at this time and so the common reader any the, it sort of democratizes things that at one point were only the purview of scholars concordances and other things like that now suddenly anyone can go to the text uh, look up any word and sort of link a bunch of proof text together or or mentions of a word together and using their common sense can can decide what that means and um this becomes a popular way that uh 
dispensationalists or, or people before that were sort of proto dispensationalists uh, would, would move to the text and they would be using their common sense. But of course, their common sense is informed by teachings they've received growing up and, and elsewhere of, of what these words mean that w that lead them to think or argue that the dispensationalist theology is just evident in the text, hmm. that there's really nothing that they're doing beyond a plain or literal hmm. reading of the text. And in, in particular, I mentioned this distinction between Israel and the church. And so one of the really common ways that dispensationalists talk about this is whenever you see the word Israel in the Bible, it means the Jewish people of God, mm -hmm. the sort of the, seat, the, the physical seat of Abraham. And and that they they read that literally, so they don't ever put in some other definition of Israel than that one. Well, if you do that, then you develop a certain way of reading the prophecies in particular that must relate to not to the church or anyone else, but Israel to the, specifically. To yeah. Israel specifically, and so they see any and, and really most other Christian traditions do allegorize those yeah. and see the fulfillment of those prophecies not in ancient Israel, but in the church, they see that as uh, not a plain reading, that you're yeah. you're importing meanings into the text, and that they are the ones holding the line on a literal plain reading of the text. And you have to be in that culture to even, uh, well, how to say it, to even think that the literal reading is the most authentic reading or the most uh, uh, accurate reading of a text. Like that, that, that's an assumption, because you're assuming that the author behind the text intended to convey... Yeah. The literal meaning yeah, and not it, the poetic meaning or the allegorical meaning yeah and it's uh, also but, not done across all texts the kind of literal surface reading across every text it's it's a little bit picky and choosy at, at points yes that's right and and it's also not literal in the absolute sense of the word literal so yeah. when when reading a prophecy about a dragon coming out of the sea with <laughs> yeah. horns they're not saying there will no. be a literal you know biological dragon coming out of the sea yeah it's that that corresponds to material uh, sort of physical reality, or, or which is an right. allegory, which, yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> yeah. but it's different than a spiritual reading, which would exactly, say, yeah, the dragon represents nothing that we, we'd ever actually see, or it, it's sort of something that is, is much sure. more moralistic or something. Um, but, but this type of reading the text is the culture that common sense, uh, Scottish common sense, uh, assumptions yeah. would lead you to. And so this becomes the baseline <laughs> for dispensationalist theological thinking. And the, the last thing I'll say about it is dispensationalists are also people who don't like the term dispensationalism because it, it puts them in a box of being promoting a certain ism, right? A, a certain sort of theory of how things go. And most dispensationalists want to say they're doing nothing different than early Christians were doing. They're primitivists in that way, which most Protestants want to think we're no, we're no different than uh, the early church on these things. Hmm. But that that creates a, a complicated situation within dispensationalism where to the outside, everyone else thinks they're doing something really different than what seems to be uh, uh, obvious. But with inside, they're claiming they're doing nothing different. So it creates this sort of interesting tension where hmm. um, it, they, they become almost, I, I talk about, they become unaware of their own tradition. Mm -hmm. Because they don't want to call it a tradition, because it, they mm -hmm. want to say they're doing nothing different than than the earliest uh, readers of the text. Yeah, but uh, and that's that's why many dispensations really stick to literalism as one of the key distinctives of their their system. If it, Charles Ryrie, who's a later theologian, is sort of the most famous one of trying to define exactly what dispensationalism's uh, key defining marks are, and two of the three are the Church-Israel distinction and a a uh, historical, grammatical, or literal reading of the text. And so these become sort of the two uh, benchmarks for uh, what dispensationalists claim make them distinct.
Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That's very helpful. Um, and, and before my next question, just some reflection kind of statements. And I want to see if you can help affirm that I'm saying the right thing or not. Um, but I will say giving credit where credit's due was something um, as a covenantal person. And I think we would agree, all three agree on this, that we, what we do appreciate from the dispensationalists uh, is that they do see a sense of urgency in spreading the gospel around totally. the world. Yep. And, and um, we're not saying that they're, not Christian and we're, you know, they're, they're fellow brothers and sisters. They have a different view on some things that we could sharply disagree on, but biblically speaking, we're both Christians and we, I, we appreciate that they're going around the world and seeing that sense of urgency to spread the gospel and get God's message. In yeah, front and of even people. desire so, to read scripture and a lot of scripture is, is something I think that kind of influence a lot of like, well, well, well done um, or kind of, a good desire to read a ton of scripture, whether or not mm-hmm. we agree with how they defined it or how they interpreted it. Um, it did really put push it like Nick said, push a sense in American evangelicalism. Yeah. So that's good. I will say too, um, something that is a super, uh, unfortunate, uh, false claim. Many dispensationalists generally will put upon covenantalism covenantalists is, you know, based on the fact that, as a covenantal people, uh, we see God's looking at his people is the church, which Israel points to. And the dispensationalism view is categorizing two different groups of God's people is the church in one group and Israel in another group. And what happens is when they um, misunderstand where us covenantal people are coming from, they're, they're, falsely claiming that we're becoming anti-Semitic in some of those views. And that's just a a, a very unfortunate claim that I've heard dispensationalists put on covenantalists. Right. Do you have any uh, reflection on that? Yeah, that's um, that is a common claim. And and it goes the other way as well. So uh, covenantalists would often call uh, not not usually anymore, but back in the day, yeah, call uh, dispensations Judaizers. Yep, <laughs> you're, you're yep. basically taking the Jewish view on the kingdom, and and that the kingdom's going to be yeah. you know kind of kind of just threw insults at each other for a long time. Yes, and yeah. and these become uh, particularly pointed after the Holocaust and yeah. this entire reexamination in the Christian world of like oh, yeah. what part of our theology uh, led to or, or allowed the production yep. of uh, Nazi anti-Semitism and stuff like that. I would say, you know, I, I wouldn't make a blame. I, I wouldn't make a blanket statement about any group of people on this. So there are definitely examples you can find of people who use covenantalist categories to be anti-Semitic yeah. to basically make an argument that you have, a, um, you have a little bit of it in Luther and some of his, yeah, some of his works. You, you do have, yeah, particularly later works where he's angry yeah. that the Jews aren't uh, listening to him. And so there, there's definitely the potential for that. There's also a potential in the dispensationalist system to be very anti-Semitic, at least to the perception of Jews, by by treating Jews as basically a pawn in a prophecy scenario where they most of them die. Um, yeah. that, that's sort of what ha- or they convert, and and for many yeah. Jews that's really offensive yep. to say that too. So, um, and then within both traditions, there's obviously the the broader traditions are not trying to get at some type of anti-Semitic uh, argument. And so right. um, I think it, it really boils down to uh, some, in some ways, how you talk about this stuff and, and exactly yeah. what point you're trying to make. I know many dispensationalists, when they hear covenantalist uh, 
just as you were talking about sort of the, this idea that the church sort of whatever replaces yeah. Replace, so yeah, they will often call it replacement theology, yep. which is sort that's of what I heard of Biola all the time. Yeah. 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 And it's sort of a polemical way to talk about it. Right. It's, it's yeah. sort of saying um, where where that that is one metaphor replacement that you can use, but that's not the only no. uh, way you can describe the, the sort of uh, continuity between ancient Israel and the church. So, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't I don't want to sort of uh, say that no covenantalists have ever used their theology yeah. to be anti-Semitic, but well, I would say have. that's <laughs> yeah, they have. But that's not the um, that that's not the necessary outcome of the theology. Yeah. And it is also not the necessary outcome of dispensationalism that you're philo-Semitic. Yep. Um, you can be in certain ways and in other ways you can be really anti-Semitic. And there's I go I chronicle a couple people who were really, really anti-Semitic, like like um uh, no doubt about it. In fact, they would say they were anti-Semitic. People like William <laughs> Bell Riley, uh, who was yeah. a fundamentalist in the 20th century, who promoted the uh, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which is a hoax, uh, anti-Semitic document. Yep. He supported Hitler, um, at least tangentially, um, and he was a dispensationalist as well. So th there's there's not necessarily definitive or determinative mm -hmm. uh, approach to the Jewish people, depending on your theology. Yeah, thank you so much for that because I I wanted to address kind of some unfortunate mischaracterizations of maybe some people that will might have a knee-jerk reaction or comments um, that on both sides that might be kind of unfortunate on that so um that's good and then you know just speaking uh, personal reflection on on reading the book was just so helpful the, the especially the chapters on the great rift and um do kind of highlight some of that historical relationship between dispensationalists and covenantalists. So I wanted to highlight that as well. So going into my question, um, we talked a little bit up to this point about the hermeneutical use of scripture. And so I wanted to go into something that's just automatically categorized quite a bit with dispensationalism, which is not, but it's not limited to uh, the premillennialism views and the eschatology views and the rapture and that kind of stuff going back into that. So you do historical work through this and you do provide views on the rapture, um, especially so the premillennial rapture theology of new dispensationalism or new premillennialism views. Um, though dispensationalists might be convinced this is the best way for reading texts of especially 1 Thessalonians and Revelation 20. Um, it had decidedly theological and practical implications. There's a fervor, like we mentioned, for missions being one of them, spreading the, the sense of urgency, spreading the gospel, which is good. How did dispensationalism, premillennial reading of scripture affect the way that they saw missions in the Christian life? Right. So the, the, the rapture is often termed in dispensationalist culture as the blessed hope. That's what that, mm -hmm. um, that first from, I believe it's Titus. Um, is referencing for dispensationalists. And so uh, they, they're not um, totally obsessed with it or anything, but the rapture becomes a, a key part of how dispensationalists understand what, uh, at least the horizon of what they're uh, working toward. And missions, as we've talked about, becomes one of the dominating uh, efforts. And so much of the global missions movement uh, through the 20th century at least has roots in dispensational uh theology and actually it's not just missions i was uh thinking through um you know i, I work at a campus here at uw madison and we work with mm -hmm. a lot of the campus ministries ones that are like crew and mm -hmm. intervarsity mm -hmm. and uh navigators 
those three, all of their early founders uh, were dispensationalists as well. Um, at, at least, at least part of their founding generation was, and so even even different types, not just global missions, but sort of reaching young people, um, uh, was was part of that uh, that orientation for for dispensationalists. Um, they also are uh, as as a group, um, they were a key part of the fundamentalist world. And so they took up the cause in the 1920s and 1910s, 1920s, 1930s in that in the fundamentalist modernist uh, controversies. And many of them sacrificed, you know, their uh, their pulpits and other things mm -hmm. to stand for what they believed were the core fundamentals of the faith, which included the inerrancy of the Bible and, you know, the uh, miracles, uh, the resurrection, all the all the things that the fundamentalists fought for. And so dispensationalists became part of the sort of um the backbone of of the fundamentalist movement and it's really hard to get numbers on this stuff but uh you know i, I don't know if it was 50 percent of all fundamentalists were dispensationalists or not but it was a big chunk and mm -hmm. and even the leadership there was a big chunk and so um the the broader fundamentalist culture that emerges in the 1920s 1930s it's really deeply shaped by by dispensationalism and that that includes the founding of places like Dallas Seminary in the 1920s. It includes the more independent fundamentalist worlds, play, people like J. Frank Norris and others who uh, were were pretty um, bombastic, but also had big followings uh, in their day. Uh, and uh, and it included uh, some of the 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 core leaders of the fundamentalist movement as well. So uh, dispensationalists sort of emerge as a culture and have an orientation to both church life and society uh, in a really distinctive way, starting in the 1920s and 1930s. And this is when the term itself comes into being. So the term dispensationalism would not have been familiar to Darby or mm -hmm. uh, any of the brethren. Um, they didn't see themselves as promoting a system of theology so much as a set of teachings. And the term comes out of 1927 and, and this uh, non-dispensationalist fundamentalist who is really upset at the failure of fundamentalists, particularly in the anti-evolution campaigns, mm -hmm. to really win the cause on that. Scopes monkey trial, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it's, so the guy's name is Philip Morrow. He's a covenantalist, or he's a he's he was a one-time yep. dispensationalist, and yep. then he he left that, and he had you know the fire of an ex uh, an ex convert, I guess you could <laughs> yeah. say. Yeah. Um, and so he was looking around for who to blame, uh, in a real sort of uh, uh, direct way for the failures of the fundamentalist movement. And he ended up identifying and, and coining dispensationalism to say all those people who have this sort of otherworldly orientation to the church haven't been committed enough to the cause in this world, in the sort of, in the, in the school systems to fight against this anti-Christian, as he called it, anti-Christian uh, ideology of evolution. Mm -hmm. And so the term itself comes out of this, uh, this way that dispensationalists are, being set apart from other fundamentalists because of their ecclesiology and because of their eschatology in, in sort of looking to the rapture um, as as the next thing on the timeline uh, for uh, for God. So uh, the last thing I'll say is is dispensations are premillennialists, like we were just talking about. So they have they tend to have a declensionist view of of history and of society until Jesus comes back. And so. Um, as they're looking around in the 1920s and 30s, they're seeing the modernist win in a lot of these denominational battles. World War II is, you know, coming up. World War One just happened. Um, the Great Depression and massive economic turmoil. They're interpreting all of these things as validations of their theology. That this is what was prophesied. Mm -hmm. This is what we should expect. 
and we should be uh, not trying to reverse these things. These things are going to happen. This is what, uh, you know, Satan has his time now to, to do these things. Um, and what we need to place our hope in is that Jesus is coming back. Mm-hmm. And that that is a different orientation than certainly a post-millennialist would have. And mm-hmm. even many of the more denominationalist uh, fundamentalists, the people that are Presbyterians or Baptists, um, they they tend to be in, in these categories amillennial. Mm-hmm. And, and they don't necessarily read all those signs of the times as imminent, meaning that Jesus is imminently coming back any moment now. But dispensationalists tend to do that. And so they tend to orient themselves toward politics um, in a way that uh, means they're less interested in, uh, well, to put it, less interested in long-term uh, solutions because <laughs> they, they don't mm-hmm. see that there's a really long-term mm-hmm. uh, horizon here. Um, and and much more concerned always to preserve the autonomy of the church and the ability of the church to spread the gospel. That's that, that's sort of their, their North Star for uh, politics as well. And so as we talked about in the 1870s, that meant getting out of certain issues that were going to bog down the church. Mm-hmm. By the time you get to the 20th century, it often means joining politics to protect, as they understand it, the church from secular humanism or other things or anti-communism. That's a big thing in the mid 20th century, um, because they see those as threats to the church's ability to conduct missions as well. Yeah. Yeah. Quick little plug for our own podcast here. If you are an individual and you want to help donate for this work, you can go to our show notes, to our Patreon page, as well as our Spotify donations page. If you want to make a recurring donations, they're either 15 or $20 a month or a single donation. You can also do that as well. Those really help us on the back end to give to this work, to keep up our website, to make sure we can pay those who help with our editing, with our software, with our merchandising, all, all those good things. If you're a potential sponsor and you want to sponsor us and, and fill out one of our ads, you can email us at guiltgracepod at gmail.com and we can talk through some of the options that we have. And we would love to work with both individuals and publishers, institutions, seminaries, whoever it may be as we all work towards our mission of bridging the gap to reform Christian theology. Yep. Help expand our work and be a bridge builder. Real quick comment. Based on that, we've heard the term uh, like newspaper theology, newspaper eschatology, where it kind of sounds like they might be having a newspaper in one hand, the Bible in the other. They're looking at the, the signs and of the times we're in, in the newspaper, uh, headlines and then they're also reading the bible very literal for what it's saying implying both of them is that right that's right and that that's more um i mean yeah that's a part of the dispensationalist culture i end up distinguishing between a more scholastic and a more popular culture within dispensationalism the 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 newspaper uh, eschatology is is the pop dispensationalist bread and butter that's how they get people to buy their books and watch their TV shows and everything else is they can claim some type of relevancy. Like let me help decode the latest development in the European union or something <laughs> like that. Cause it, it fits into uh, this prophecy. Uh, there's more, there's a, also a scholastic tradition that is more wary of that kind of stuff though. They do. Um, I mean, this is part of my sort of critique of them. They do dabble in the, the newspaper stuff when it suits them. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, particularly at, at, at moments of massive geopolitical uh, turmoil, but they tend to want to be much more reserved on claiming anything like uh, what we're seeing today is fits into this prophecy exactly. And there's a history of people doing that poorly and badly. Uh, every major war, there is a dispensationalist who's going to say, 
this fits into, you know, this scenario. Um, and so there, there's a sense of like, this is going to make us lose credibility if we do this over and over again. Uh, but there's also a sense that uh, the the role of dispensationalism isn't just to stoke those fires. Mm -hmm. It's to actually build up the church. And that's where like places like Dallas Seminary and later Talbot Seminary, um, that, that they're in more in that mode. They're trying to train pastors to be faithful expositors of the Bible and to hold up biblical inerrancy and other things they think are really important, uh, and less so to just chase after the headlines. But that's definitely a major part of what most people outside the dispensationalist world know about dispensationalism, is that they'll link up, uh, you know, the, the really um, uh, infamous one uh, is, is, you know, something like reading locusts in Revelation mm. to mean Apache helicopters Black <laughs> um, or Black Hawk helicopters. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and you know, this is interesting because it's like that's not literal, right? Because uh, and this was something that um, the scholastic people would say, which is a literal reading of that would be locusts, like yep. that there are literal <laughs> hordes of locusts coming. Um, but people that were on the more pop dispensationalist side, people like Tim LaHaye and the Left Behind novels and other things wanted to make that relevance claim very clear. And the, the most relevant thing you could do is say, you know, modern military technology is prophesied in the Bible. And let me tell you, you know, sort of how, when we learn about this new type of weapon, well, that actually lines up with this particular part of, of Revelation. Um, but that, that was seen by the scholastics as really irresponsible um, usage, but becomes really the dominant way um, most people understand dispensationalism. Yeah, that's, that was, that was really helpful for me because like, like how they can treat covenantalists as, as a little monolithic. I think covenantalists can can then treat dispensationalists as, as a little monolithic as yeah. everyone believes the same thing. It's newspaper theology, which like you just talked about, uh, and I think this is a good way to kind of dig a little bit deeper. And this is so the shift, and you talk about in one of your chapters, the rift um, between scholastic dispensationalism and, and popular dispensationalism. And my guess is kind of modern evangelicalism is much more familiar with popular dispensationalism than they are with scholastic. Uh, so I want to, I want to focus a little bit more on the popular side, although we can kind of contrast this and, and compare it with the, uh, the scholastic uh, and their, and, and particularly so their relationship with the more majority of the seventies, American politics, Republican politics. Uh, and who were some of the major players? You've already kind of dove into some of them. And how did, how did this marriage and just to be frank between Republican politics and, and dispensational um, theology come about. Right. And uh, yet, yeah, I think it's first just important to understand how popular pop, what I'm calling pop dispensation. <laughs> Incredibly is. popular. Yeah. It's unbelievable. It's, it's, I mean, this is part of the, I, I, my guess would be even today, pop dispensationalism forms Christians on a day to day basis more Absolutely. than almost any other popular theology. Yep. Uh, and so it, the, the popularization, th there's a history of it being popular all the way back in the 19th century, but it really blows up in the 1970s. Yeah. Uh, the best-selling nonfiction book of that decade was How Lindsay's Lake Great Planet Earth, How Lindsay Went to Dallas Seminary, Became a Crew, uh, Campus Crusade uh, at that time, uh, a ministry worker at UCLA, mm -hmm. and then took a lot of, and this is the 60s, this is sort of the heady, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, Vietnam protests and everything yeah. else. And he popularizes, or he he makes a really popular version of the end times teachings that turned into the Lake Great Planet Earth. It sells 10 million copies in the 70s, becomes the best-selling nonfiction book of that decade, and it sets uh, Lindsay off on a on a career of just bestseller after bestseller. That's basically recycling a lot of the same insights, but updating them every decade for what's changed in the world. Yeah, uh, in geopolitics. Yeah, yeah, in geopolitics. So in 1970, he's very 
interested in the Middle East. Of course, there's a big war in 1967 where Israel mm-hmm. takes up, uh, conquers a bunch of territory that makes it look like it's fulfilling. It's more giddy. Yep. <laughs> right. By 1980, he updates that because the Middle East is a little less important, but yeah. much more important is the Cold War between the Soviet Union and the U.S. and Reagan and all that kind of stuff. Um, but but this becomes you know a major uh, source for evangelical culture. Uh, I trace it through the mega church world, through mm-hmm. um, Christian contemporary music. Mm-hmm. There's tons of movies and TV shows that draw on the rapture and other things. So that's one whole sort of commercial legacy or consumer legacy. And then the other big legacy is the political legacy. And this has to do with, um, it, this is where I try to have a through line, which is yep. by the seventies, there's this growing critique among conservative uh, fundamentalists and evangelicals that um, there's a secular humanist threat that is going to take over the country and going to make uh, and this would be the way they would describe it in the 70s, is going to make the U.S. no different than the Soviet Union. They're, mm-hmm. they're going to look the same. They're going to oppress Christianity. And there were some major dispensationalist voices that were promoting this. And uh, some of the big figures from that era were dispensationalists. People like Jerry Falwell came out of a dispensationalist tradition. He was an independent Baptist. Uh, and then people like Tim LaHaye, who was the co-author of the Left Behind novels. He uh, was trained at Bob Jones University and then Western Seminary. And assumed yeah. dispensationalism was right. He was friends with Hal Lindsey and other things. And so he developed a sort of, uh, he, it's, it's, a, I don't want to take him too seriously because I don't think he took himself too seriously on this, but he developed what he called a pre tribulation tribulation. So <laughs> yeah. there's a whole system and he called it that. It's, it's not a, a he also called it the humanist tribulation. But the pre-tribulation tribulation is more helpful to me to understand what he's trying to do with the eschatology. But basically saying before the rapture, there's going to be a time of testing for the church in America. And that time of testing is is not um, it's not destined to go one way or the other. It'll depend on the church's response to whether the church can meet that testing or or fail in it. And to me, this really messes with a lot of the dispensationalist uh, ways they they think about the mm-hmm. world. But for LaHaye and many people around him, this made a lot of sense. And so they rallied around a political platform, a part of it being part of the moral majority and other organizations, that was really about asserting Christian values and and getting Christians in positions of power uh, in, the Democrat, in the democratic process to stave off the humanist tribulation, to beat the humanists in taking over American culture. And though this is where like culture wars, I mean, this is a term that they would have embraced, which is like, mm-hmm. yes, we're fighting for the culture against these anti-Christian forces. Uh, this becomes a major source of the Christian right, as we call it, which is a major source of the Republican Party's uh, uh, influence in the 1980s up to today. And so um, the dispensationalist contribution to that is really in activating a lot of lay dispensationalists to move from that uh, uh, quietism or that that understanding that, well, the church shouldn't be really involved in politics because that's mm-hmm. worldly, to saying we need to be involved in politics to protect the church. Uh, if we want the church to continue to be, uh, LaHaye would often quote uh, this stat that 85% of all global missions came from Americans because of the affluence of American society and the generosity of American Christians. And so he would often paint a picture of like, what would it look like if suddenly 85% of global missions work stopped because the American church was outlawed because secular mm-hmm. humanists took control and suddenly it was illegal to be a Christian or something like that. So he'd paint these very bleak 
pictures of the future as a way to illustrate to the dispensationalists in the pew what was at stake if they just didn't vote in the next election. And they ended up deciding, based on a lot of different reasons, not just dispensational theology, that the way you should vote is Republican and that Republicans stood for the right types of values. Um, they were good on anti-communism. They were good on sort of family values and other things. And uh, once that connection was made conceptually, the two groups, the Republican Party and dispensationalists, at, at least some of them, get really interwoven in like an institutional way as well. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, through the 80s and 90s in particular, uh, there's a very strong dispensationalist leadership in the Christian right. Uh, people like Falwell are going to the White House all the time and meeting with the president and all that type of stuff. And that's one of the legacies now of dispensationalism. It, it gets more complicated than that when you get to the 2020s and yeah. the present day. But um, you really see a shift. Uh, one illustration of the shift is Jerry Falwell, who in 1965, uh, made a, a famous speech against participating in the civil rights movement. And he said, mm -hmm. you should never find a pastor marching for civil rights because that is mixing worldly and mm -hmm. heavenly values. Mm -hmm. And and just 10 years later, he's, he's doing the same thing. <laughs> yeah. And he's basically saying, you better be in the pro-life march yeah. if you're a pastor, because this is, uh, you know, an existential issue. And so, you know, he, he acknowledges this, that this was a shift. But, but he doesn't think it's a shift on his side. Like he's not changing what he believes. Yeah. He's assessing the situation uh, politically and saying, for the sake of the church, we now need to be involved, whereas before we didn't need to be. That's yeah. the charitable reading of what he was doing. Um, there's less charitable uh, readings <laughs> yeah. as well that his own biases are playing into these things as well. Yeah. Yeah. So you're saying the shift is not so much his belief system as it is kind of the the historic tradition within dispensationalism again kind of broad brush was to pull back from politics not to be involved in these things if you had a pastor who was involved in politics maybe don't go to that church and he, he shifts it in 10 years and says no actually let's be involved in politics but our side of politics that that's the good stuff right and and the way i'm trying to be you know uh, i guess charitable to them but, yeah. but to try to make it make it seem like they're not just changing their minds overnight is that in the 60s if 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 missions is your lodestar, then the answer is to not be involved in politics because that detracts from yeah. energy that could be spent towards missions. In the 70s, the answer is to be involved in politics to protect the mission effort. And yeah. so yeah, yeah. That, the, the missions is consistent. I do think, I don't want to go past this without saying um, there's a lot of racism underneath this as well that is yeah, animating unfortunately. Uh, yeah. Christians as well. And so uh, someone like Falwell has a pretty checkered past outside of what we've been talking about yeah. in relating to African Americans. In the, and he was, you know, he was in Virginia. He was in a, an, a one-time Confederate state as well. So there's a there's a lot of racial history here that can't not you can't just wash that away and say it's, oh it's sure. all about this this theology. But there is a there is a sense that this missions this missions priority is still animating it. And so when Falwell's uh, giving political rallies in the late 70s, early 80s, he's talking about the the purpose of America is to be um, the sender of, of global missions. Like he's, he's articulating the purpose of the United States in those terms, which to me is a key that he really does believe that. Like that's, that's sort of animating yeah. why he's getting involved in politics at that time. Oh, that's helpful. All right. Yeah, no, this is, this is such a fascinating conversation just really uh objective historically i mean yeah some, <laughs> objective some, as human beings could be yeah 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 i i some things might seem 
harsh, but it's just trying to be as true to historical facts as possible, you know? And, and so we, we want to also, um, to my last question is really particularly really interesting because, um, the book, even your title says there, it insinuates there's a fall to dispensationalism, obviously the rise and the fall. So I want to focus on the fall part. Um, we obviously know that dispensationalism is still has its influence today. Yeah, it's it was so too big th- to fall. People are like, what are you talking about fall? This is still so huge in America. Right. Yeah, it's it's and I think you uh, mentioned it at some point in your book where it is too big to just disappear. What it's really done is evolved or morphed into maybe some other things. And I know it's lost. We know it's lost. uh some scholarly support since the nineties, but uh, how did the fall come about? What is it evolved or morphed into? Cause um, we want to, are, are you can, sure it's falling? <laughs> That's that are, was my big question. Yeah. It's like, is it, really? is it just changing or did it truly fall? And it, 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 you know, if it did fall, where, why did it happen and where is it now? And where do you have an educated guess where it's going to be in the future? Yeah, well, um, I mean, fall in t- in two ways, uh, and they're meant to be provocative. If nothing else, it yeah. gets people to pick up the book. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. One is so we we just talked about the sort of popular legacy. Yeah. I'm a I'm a historian. I'm also a Christian who has certain views on these things. I'm not a fan of the pop dispensationalist uh, legacy. Neither am I. I think it. Yeah, yeah I I'll think put it, my cards on the table. I'm not a fan at all. <laughs> So in one way, I, I and I, I end the book talking about uh, people who've helped me think through some of this stuff, um, uh, N.T. Wright and then Richard Middleton, who's another uh, yep. scholar in this in this field. Um, I, I think there's been a fall in the way that dispens- pop dispensationalism has formed millions of Christians to think about eschatology and to think about politics and, and consuming evangelical culture. And so that's one, one version of the fall is that, is mm. I don't really... Um, I, by the end, I was trying to evoke, I talk a lot about sort of the legacy in popular culture of dispensationalism in one of the later chapters. I was trying to evoke almost like a judge's feeling of like, there is mm-hmm. no king here. It's just sort of mm-hmm. everyone's running amok and everyone's got to, their own interpretation and just kind yeah. of bring it in separate ways. And, and in some, in some particular cases, just trying to accumulate wealth and money yeah. off of this type of, uh, sort of analysis of the geopolitics and stuff like that. So that's one version of the fall. The other is in the academic world. You could say the ac- the evangelical academic world. If you were, if you rewound to 1960 or 1970, oh yeah, there would be a big question. I don't think you could you could put bets on any one of a number of traditions for sort of who would win out in the next 50 years in, in sort of capturing the centrist, mainstream evangelical academic uh, imagination. And dispensationalism was definitely in the running. If, oh, yeah, it was I, big. Yeah, yeah, I tried to paint the picture that it's not just Dallas Seminary. There's Talbot oh. Seminary and Grace Seminary in Indiana. There are, I mean, Dallas Seminary at the time was one of the biggest seminaries in the world. Um, there are academic journals. There are yeah. presses publishing dispensationalist scholars. Schofield um, Bibles is selling like crazy at these times. Yeah. Yeah, we didn't, we didn't even talk about it. So the Schofield Bible is the best-selling Bible in annotated Bible. In, that was my uh, wife's first Bible was the Schofield Bible when she went to Calvary. Yeah. There's so many people I, I, I run into. It wasn't my first Bible. I don't think, I think I had a promise keepers Bible. Uh, oh, first, but, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, 
but for so many people, the Schofield Bible, which has these annotations that just explain the dispensationalist view of these things, yeah. it's revised in 1967 to sort of yeah. update it after 50 years. So you would you wouldn't guess that 50 years from then that dispensationalism would basically be an extremely marginal conversation in academic evangelicalism. And uh, one way to just trace this is to see that in the three places I just mentioned, Talbot, Dallas, and a place called Grace Seminary, uh, where are they at today? Well, uh, Dallas still teaches dispensationalism. It teaches progressive dispensationalism yep. alongside uh, some classic dispensationalism. Progressive dispensationalism, in my reading, is... A, a major oh it's uh, a different animal yeah yeah seeding of ground to the covenantalist oh yeah absolutely a lot of things. yep so that's, that's it's, it's like a, it's main critique from the dispensational crowd like this is not right. what we believe right and i took those critiques pretty seriously so even though it's called dispensationalism it's that really to me not, is yeah. more of a branding thing than yeah, like a, exactly. a substantive thing um talbot seminary uh, we were talking about this before being on air it's now it's new dean it's ed stetzer who is not mm -hmm. a dispensationalist no and uh, and I think the legacy is mixed there. And then Grace Seminary is still around, but it's very small and it's not nearly as significant no, as it used to it's be. Nothing like yeah, what it used to be. And then and then places that in 1960 or 70 had dispensationalists on the faculty, at least in part, places like Trinity Evangelical Divinity mm -hmm. School, and uh, even Gordon had a mm -hmm. few. Today, that's not even there's no dispensationalists there, and no. it's it's entirely out of. Uh, out of style to be a dispensationalist where you do find dispensationalist uh, faculty anywhere are either in much smaller uh, independent seminaries or mm -hmm. Christian colleges, or there are some that are much older uh, people who are, you know, 65 or 70 mm -hmm. and you don't see the sort of 35 year old hotshot uh, no. dispensationalist theologian. <laughs> That's just not happening. Yeah. So I was trying to do a little projection which is saying, I don't think there's going to be a live dispensationalist theological conversation in like 20 years. I just yeah, don't know where it's going to be. Of course, things could change and it could you know, something totally crazy could happen, but it just doesn't seem like there's um, there's there's the momentum or the institutional structure for that. I've talked to a few uh, dispensationalist scholars since this has come out who have said, uh, you know, hey, we're still here. Um, <laughs> don't. I do really want to distinguish a fall does not mean a disappearance. So yeah. a fall is relative to a certain earlier point. And that's really what I wanted to get at. Um, but even those dispensational scholars that have, that have reached out to me, they'll couch their, they'll say, you know, we're still here, but we're not, uh, mm -hmm. we're not able to be taken account of because no one will publish our articles and the publish. And to me, it's like, well, that's part of the fall is that like the <laughs> publishers won't publish your stuff. I mean, that's, yeah. Um, it, it may not feel fair, it may not feel just, but just looking at it from a historian's perspective, that's what happens when um, a, a, a theological system falls out of favor. And I like to also remind dispensationalists that 100 years ago, they did the same things to the post-millennialists. So post-millennialism was the dominant view in the oh, 19th yeah. century. And as you, if you look in the early 20th century, that view is in massive decline in the evangelical world. After while, World Wars, yeah, people are like, I don't think things right. are getting better. Things are getting worse. While premillennialism is going up. And the same thing happened where post-millennialists suddenly don't have the same platforms and yeah. they're losing pulpits and other things. And so, you know, uh, from a historian's perspective, this is sort of um, just the way things develop. But totally. that's the fall that um, I was trying to track for the academic side is is this sense that um, there's really not a the, the biggest systematic theology of dispensationalism was produced by the founder of Dallas Seminary, Lewis Berry Schaefer, 
Um, that was produced in 1948, and <laughs> yeah. it, there has been nothing to replace it since. No. And that's to me a sign of a troubling uh, tradition as well. Is when your you know your your classic text is closer to 100 years old um, than it is to being new. Um, <laughs> and and you just don't. And it was also comparison at the end to sort of the revival of Calvinism. That we've seen in the last, and it's like there's a lot more activity there. There's a lot more young people who are sort of flocking, yep. and I'm not making a value judgment necessarily on that. Just, just sort of observing. There's just more popularity around it. And another tradition that has a lot of popularity around it is Pentecostalism. Yep. And there's a lot of young Pentecostal pastors who are trying to do, you know, new things with yeah, theology, yeah. especially outside of the, th the U.S. that are kind of yeah. bringing in stuff here too. Yeah. Yeah, and one of the things about Pentecostalism, which is interesting, which I go into a little, is that early Pentecostalism was deeply shaped by dispensationalism. Yeah. Um, just because of the the overlapping networks that were there. And one of the things that you've seen in the last couple generations of Pentecostal theologians is their identification of that and then their their attempt to try to get out of that, to try to to say we don't want to have any dispensationalist assumptions behind our theology. And so that's another sign of decline, is when like the from a dispensationalist perspective, when this when the other traditions you've influenced are trying to ex get rid of that influence, that's not a good sign either. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, yeah. it shows that sort of you're no longer the main uh, dictator of these things. Um, I'm going to turn on the light here. <laughs> yeah. uh, I wasn't moving enough, I guess. Um, anyway, that, those are some of the things I was trying to capture with the fall metaphor on the academic side. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah, that's, well, post post seventies, the rise of you could say the rise of popular dispensationalism and the fall of scholastic dispensationalism fell both popular and scholastic because there was just no scholarly umph behind it. It was kind of popular imagination. It's marriage with politics. Um, the rise of one you can call branch, and sure, there's kind of there's variation in that branch as well. Um, yeah, it took down both because it's it uh it it kind of married an unholy marriage and. And then I went from there. Um, but Dr. Hummel, thank you so much for, for coming on, for, for writing this book. Um, I'm, I'm sure there are some dispensationalists who are not super happy about this book. And there's some people who are super soaked about this book. Um, but it's it's a fascinating look at the rise of this, especially in American context. Uh, we're just so dominated and still, like we talked about, popularly dominates the church. Maybe not so much scholastically dominates the church anymore. Uh, but thank you so much for coming on our show. It's been it's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, it's been great. Uh, you guys have been great conversation partners. So thanks for the attention and uh, the conversation. Of course. Thank you. Hey, I hope you enjoyed this week's book club episode where we spotlight a specific book from a publisher and an author that both Nick and I really enjoy. We don't always agree with everything that the author uh, or the book comes about, but what they do share with us is love for Christ and his gospel from whatever tradition they come from, whatever creedal tradition they come from or confessional tradition. Uh, we all do share the same broader ecumenical Christian faith from different backgrounds, ethnicities, and, and denominations. Uh, we, we hope that these introduce books that you might not have heard of before, authors that you might not have heard of before. Um, I've been uh, really helped by learning about some of these. If you want to go to our show notes, find a link to the publisher. That helps them out a ton. A link to the author's page, to the book, to purchase it from the publisher themselves. It really helps them um, expose their work uh, through the publisher themselves. 
Yeah, and the value that we're bringing with these book clubs is you guys can really rely on us because as we all know, it takes a lot of time and effort to stay on top of all the books that are coming out and know which ones are probably good to look into, be recommended to read, look out for. And so these uh, these episodes are to whet your palate. You can we have already know that we're going to recommend this book, but you can um, listen to the episode yourself, get a little more understanding of the book and the author, and then go from there. Yeah. So if you want to find these books and uh, and purchase one for yourself, purchase one for friends or family, and also too, if you can find us on Apple, Spotify, any podcast catcher, rate and review us. That's that's how we're that's how we're best known. It's how we kind of make ourselves known. Uh, introduce these to a friend and and maybe just build your bookcase, build your reading, uh, read broader and, and read really well, all under the umbrella of our creedal faith under Jesus Christ. <laughs>